the story of Lisk would not have come or maybe not anywhere near as quickly as it did if it was not for Shannon Gilbert's story. May 2nd, which is the day after we just discussed where she disappeared into the night, Alex Diaz, Shannon's live-in boyfriend, would call Michael Pack. Pack would act surprised, however, and gave Alex the contact for Joseph Brewer, the John. Guarded and distrustful of the situation, Alex drove from their New Jersey home to meet Joseph Brewer at the gate of the Oak Beach community. He came ready with a tiny pistol he could easily hide in his palm of his hand, just in case. They met at the gate, under cover of dark, and Alex felt alarmed when the disheveled Joseph Brewer came out, insisting that Alex come to his house and search the house. Come on, come to the house. You can search my house. Obviously, Joseph was trying to calm and reassure Alex, but not knowing him and his girlfriend just missing, how else would he feel? So he says, I'm going to call the cops. And Joseph Brewer goes, go ahead. So emboldened by this, he says, let's drive down. So they drive down to the precinct together to report Shannon missing. Now, when they got there, the officers didn't take this serious at all. Alex recalls that they could barely contain their laughter, saying that she's probably out and she'll come back. Something is a common theme that throughout all these girls' stories is that the cops did not take it serious. There's an old disgusting police saying when a prostitute's killed, and it's called no human involved. It's disgusting, it's dehumanizing, and something I'm sure the police would say, oh no, no, we don't feel that way, but their actions speak otherwise. At least at the time. It does seem like they're making a little more of an effort now, but under the uh, direction of Jimmy Burke, for sure, they did not care about these girls. They were too busy doing a cover-up on Christopher Loeb. If only they put the same attention, buying burner phones and such, into covering up their beating of Christopher Loeb, maybe they would have gotten a little more info when this first broke. Seven months later, in December of 2010, an officer and his dog, Blue, were doing a training exercise. They know Shannon Gilbert's missing, so he, quick thinking, knows that the FBI statistics says that most bodies are dumped on the side of a highway or a road. So he decides to go over by Ocean Parkway, which would be on the back side of those houses where she went missing. His dog, Blue, picked up a scent. Despite the cold and a light dusting of snow, they picked up a scent, and around 50 feet into the dense brush that lines the parkway, they felt the skeletal remains, a young woman, in a disintegrating burlap bag. As the light covering of snow drifted and the winds pushed, it was one body after another. Four in total, and they were dubbed the Gilgo Four. 50 feet in and approximately 500 feet apart, you have Marine Brainerd Barn, missing since Monday, July 9th, 2007. She was 25 years old, she was 4 feet 11 inches tall and approximately 105 pounds. Next, you have Melissa Bartholomew, missing since Friday, July 10th, 2009. She was the first found. She was 24 years old, 4 feet 10 inches tall, and weighing around 95 pounds. Next, Megan Waterman, missing since Sunday, June 6, 2010. She was 22 years old, the only one that was odd out. She had 5 feet 5 inches and weighing about 145 pounds. The last to go, Amber Costello, the last of the so-called Gilgo Four. She went missing Thursday, September 2nd, 2010. She was 27 years old, five feet tall, and around 100 pounds. 
these four women had all worked as Craigslist escorts. Now, even between the four, there was some commonality and some differences. So Megan Waterman and Amber Costello had both been working on Long Island and seemed to have some comfort level with their last known John. We know this is both girls straight from their normal routine built to ensure their safety. No phones, meeting in spots picked by the John, this would ensure no one would see them leaving. Now this was just odd behavior for the two of them. They both had tried and true behaviors that they stuck to religiously to make sure that they were safe, but they broke them that night. Megan Waterman, working out of a hotel in Hopog, sat right off the LIE, the Long Island Expressway. Her pimp, known as Vibe, says he was in Brooklyn at the time of her last date. The police have released footage of her time in the hotel. Now according to the book, Lost Girls, Megan left the hotel at 1.30 a.m. and someone reported seeing her walk down the dark, deserted service road towards a gas station at the next major intersection. Today, there's a red light camera, but presumably in 2010, there was no such luck. The gas station on the corner also shut down for a period of time and was rebuilt after this 2010 incident. So any physical evidence or cameras that may be there are long gone and lost. Presumably the cops would have asked for it anyhow. Back in 2010, that area was also very desolate. Now you had that service road, but it's very dark there even today. And then on the opposite side of the hotel, it's just a uh, commercial industrial type zone. Very, very low key, especially at night, 1.30, there would be no one there. It'd be very dark and deserted. So her walking along the service side, you know, maybe you have a few cars passing, but it, it generally speaking would be pretty quiet. Now, Amber Costello, she was living in the town of Babylon with two male roommates and her sister. The house had become known for its illicit visits from Johns, many of whom Amber and her roommates would scam. Now, as drugs were a huge part of their lives, heroin being the driving force, the house became a mess. Now, from this roommate, we find that Amber spent the day going back and forwards with this last John. You know, they were negotiating price, and there was almost like a seduction. I'm sure both sides felt like they were getting over on the other with the prices going high and little does the other side know. Now, Amber ultimately having to agree to this extraordinary price at $1,500, which is Amber, a full-blown addict at this point, she did not get offers like this. And as such, she let her guard down. Maybe she worked with this guy before, maybe she didn't. But the $1,500 allure as a drug addict is too much for most. And she let her guard down and she left the house with no phone, no purse. The John insisted that she walk down the road to the next intersection so she would get in the car with no one the wiser on what vehicle they were using. Melissa Bartholomew and Maureen Brainerd Barnes, on the other hand, disappeared from New York City just like Jessica Taylor did four years earlier. Now, Maureen was from Connecticut, but she was working at a cheap hotels in New York City, so she would avoid getting evicted from her home in Connecticut. Okay, so due to unplanned circumstances, though, she ended up left alone in the city. Now, this was also a fear from the norm for her. So her self-defense mechanisms were let down. We know the night she disappeared, she had called home to ask for a ride, stating that she had been robbed of all her money that she made that weekend. But they said it was too late and they couldn't give her a ride. She said, fine, I'll find my own way home. 
It didn't seem to be a big deal, just a matter of fact, she'll find her way home. She was at the Port Authority, a major transition point for people going in and out of the city. And just a reminder, Jessica Taylor was last seen at Port Authority. So this is a, you know, a recurring theme. Port Authority is a major transit hub where people go in and out of the city. Melissa Bartholomew was a streetwalker. She worked for a pimp named Blaze. They actually worked the streets outside of strip clubs. When the men would come out all hot and heavy, not being able to touch the girls all night, they would come in and seal the deal late in the evening. Eventually, however, she felt that Blaze was, in her own words, using her up in order to pay for his wife. She didn't, she disagreed essentially with how much money he was taking. However, just like any other illicit gang or other type of drug dealing, it's not easy to break away. And when she did try to break away from Blaze, he had her beat up. A group of women beat Melissa. She balled up on the ground and they were punching and kicking her when a man walked up and said, this is what you get for disrespecting me. A witness later identified that man as Blaze. Undeterred though, Melissa would continue to book dates off of Craigslist and dreamed of one day opening a salon of her own. That's really what she came to the city for. A legitimate business is what she wanted. Melissa was last seen at her Bronx home. Blaze would later confirm that he knew Melissa had a $1,000 date in Long Island shored up for the night. In that same book, The Lost Girls, Blaze would also say he knew who the John was and where the date was, despite Melissa not allowing him to drive her. Melissa declined his offer to, for the ride, yet somehow Blaze knows who this John is. It sticks out, it's very weird that he would say that, and that's it, there's nothing else behind it. You would think that would mean he know whose Lisk is. For 10 days, Melissa was missing. The police openly stating to the family lawyer that she was a hooker and that they wouldn't assign a detective to something like this. For those 10 days, her family, her younger sister, Amanda, all worried. Melissa's landlord knew something was wrong, as Melissa had taken in many stray cats and they cried and clawed at the door when their owner didn't come home. 10 days, no DNA, no canvassing. It was only after they checked her phone records and noticed that a cell tower in Massapequa, Long Island pinged when someone checked her voicemail. What changed their mind was when Amanda, Melissa's 16-year-old sister, received a call from Melissa's cell number. Only it wasn't Melissa, it was a man's voice, one she would describe as calm and with no accent. The calls would start on July 16th and abruptly stop in late. August 2009. The man would call Amanda a racist term. He would state matter-of-factly that he killed her sister and was watching her rot. He would ask her if she was going to become a prostitute just like her sister. Oddly, when Amanda tried to have her mother answer, the man would immediately hang up, only wanting to talk to Amanda. The phone that Amanda had wasn't set up to record, and by the time they bought a phone that would record, the phone call stopped. Sadly, his voice was never recorded. These calls have been one of the best-known clues of Lisk. The news hypothesized that the man may have had a background in law enforcement, as he knew to never stay on the phone long enough for them to track him down further. Then the calls were coming from well-populated areas of Manhattan. Places like Penn Station, Times Square, places we already know to be a hunting ground for Lisk. Let's go back to late 2010 and early 2011, when Suffolk County is searching Ocean Parkway by Gilgo Beach. At this point, all the police have are four women dubbed the Gilgo Four. The police have not found Shannon Gilbert, but they have substantial reasons to keep searching. Yet, January 24th, 2011, 
Police Commissioner Dormer inexplicably calls off the search due to the weather. I find this to be odd and off-putting, as there were families, including the Gilberts, who wanted to know where their daughters were, and they were forced to wait. She's a fighter. She hasn't backed. She don't back down. The 22-year-old waterman who works as an escort went missing on June 8th after a trip to Long Island with her boyfriend, Akeem Cruz. Since then, Ela has held out hope authorities would find her daughter. That is, until she heard news of four decomposed bodies found on a Long Island beach this weekend. Scarborough police say one of the bodies could be her daughter's since it was in the vicinity of where she was last seen. Even though there is that uncertainty that it is, it's not her, how much of it in your heart? Do you feel like it, it, this, this could be this could be her? Ninety percent. She's. It's been too long. And when you're done, take it out and just put it back away. In order to find out for sure, Scarborough police asked Ela for a swab sample to see if her DNA will match one of the bodies. In a matter of just trying to again speed the process up, uh, it, these type of samples would be less processing and quicker turnaround. Come early spring. The search continued, and on March 29, 2011, one mile east of the original site, police discovered a skull, a forearm, hands, which would later be identified as belonging to Jessica Taylor, who we discussed in our previous video. I'll put a link below in the description. Less than a week later, on April 4, 2011, the body of an Asian male dressed in women's clothing was discovered. Identified Asian male was estimated to be between the ages of 17 and 23 years old at the time of his death. He's approximately five, six, five foot six inches tall, had poor dental health, missing both top and bottom molars, and one of his top front teeth. Investigators have determined that he was wearing woman's clothes when his body was found. The cause of death strayed from the norm for Lisk, and as Asian Doe died of blunt force trauma to the head. So, we have to speculate here. Did Lisk pick up a transgender sex worker and then find out Asian Doe was not biologically female, and in a fit of rage, beat Asian Doe? It's purely speculative, but Asian Doe is interesting as it opens the doors to other victims, victims that we will discuss later in this video. On April 4th, they also found a skull hands, and foot of Jane Doe number six, who we now know as Valerie Mack. Jane Doe number six, whose head, hands, and right foot were recovered along Ocean Parkway on April 4th, was linked by DNA to a torso discovered in Manaville on November 19, 2000. We have determined that these remains are of a young Caucasian female, 18 to 35 years old, approximately five feet, two inches tall. Finally, and very sadly, there was a female toddler, no more than four years old, found wrapped in a blanket with no signs of trauma. She would be known as Baby Doe. Baby Doe, as we know from the part one of this list series, was linked to Peaches by DNA. Peaches was the mother, and this is interesting as it opens questions. Did Liz work with a woman? Is this why Peaches felt comfortable bringing her child with her on these dates? Some profilers believe so. Was Peaches someone who was in a relationship with Lisk? Was Baby Doe related to Lisk, biologically, not just in this cruel scenario where he's the killer? We don't know, but it is telling that Peaches felt comfortable enough with her killer to bring a child with her on the date. 
And remember, this is also one of the earliest known killings. If Baby Doe had lived, she would have been 28 to 30 years old today. Finally, on April 11, 2011, a plastic bag containing the upper and lower parts of the extremities later to be determined to come from Peaches. This was found by Zach's Bay, which is where the Jones Beach Amphitheater lays. To me, it's unnerving. For decades, world-famous music acts would play to 16,000 fans only a short distance away, laid Peaches, her daughter, and less than a few miles down the road, the rest of these unfortunate victims. I know I've personally driven this road, and I know I catch myself staring out into the bush more often now. As you know, uh, the search for Shannon Gilbert has continued over the past year and a half. And that we have mentioned, I have mentioned many times that we were going to continue looking for uh, Miss Gilbert. And the search that was conducted yesterday morning or continued yesterday morning was part of that search for her. During yesterday's search, a canine officer, John Malia, discovered items which included a pocketbook with identification in the pocketbook belonging to Shannon Gilbert. We believe that this is her pocketbook. Sometime after the pocketbook was found, a pair of jeans, a pair of shoes were found. We believe that they may belong, belong to Shannon Gilbert. That has to be determined, but they're found in the same place that the uh, pocketbook was found. Today, during the search, they found a cell phone, which they believe may belong to Shannon Gilbert. Now, it's our belief that her body or parts of her remains may be in that location. That's why the search is going to continue today till it gets dark and then commence again tomorrow. Search will continue into the foreseeable future. Uh, hopefully we'll find her remains and at least move this investigation uh, closer to a conclusion. And the truth is, we may never know exactly what did happen to Shannon Gilbert. After this much time, the medical examiner may not be able to exactly pinpoint the cause of death. I mean, the body, if that is in fact her, has right. been out 18 months. You point out in your piece of how her family is convinced that, that she could be one of the victims. They talk about the 911 call, they talk about the placement of things that were found, but, but investigators, law enforcement, not. Convinced. Well, why is that? I mean, why is there just... Why are they so convinced that, that she is not? Well, number one, I even I don't believe she's number 11. I don't yeah. think she's yeah. a victim of the serial killer, but she could have been murdered because she was afraid of something that night. Sure. The I think the investigators say why she's not the 11th, for obvious reasons. Her body was found under very different circumstances. The the At least four of the bodies of the serial killer, the victims of the serial killer, were wrapped in burlap, mm -hmm. they were dismembered. That was not the way Shannon Gilbert's remains were found. But, but it is, I think, a little irresponsible for the police to say she absolutely drowned before there has even been an autopsy yeah, conducted. It in, in, in 10 seconds, here, any, any closer at this point investigators to finding the serial killer? Um, clearly not, because uh, the Dormer Police Commissioner Dormer said to me, it's one serial killer. Then yesterday, the prosecutor said it's more than one. Yeah. I think that says a lot. It does. Clip. Shannon Gilbert's remains were eventually found 18 months after she disappeared, long enough that it was mostly bones and no body. 
the media attention on this case has been fiery hot. Even before the autopsy was done, Suffolk County was saying Miss Gilbert died of a drowning. It's also been said she succumbed to the elements. It's all just a little bizarre when you account for the 50 degrees temperature on the morning of Miss Gilbert's disappearance. I know Cherie Gilbert, Shannon's sister, doesn't believe that she died accidentally. After Suffolk County released the long-requested 9-11 call, the other Miss Gilbert had a press conference with her longtime lawyer, Mr. John Ray, to state that she believes her sister was murdered. I just feel like they dropped the ball from the very beginning. Um, they didn't allow the FBI to come in. And I just think that we definitely need somebody to come in independently and review this case. During the press conference, they also stated that certain detectives should be removed. And this echoes other victims, friends and family who believe that an independent investigator needs to take up the case. Bear Brodsky, who I previously interviewed on this channel, is a friend of Amber Costello, sent a short video I'd like to include here. And the other thing I want to add is, you know, my heart goes out to all the families of everybody that has lost a loved one due to this horrible string of events. And I really have to say from the bottom of my heart that I hope Suffolk County will step off this investigation and hand it over to the feds because we have put our trust into Suffolk County now for going over a decade and they have given us nothing. The release of this information they've gave to the public has done nothing. We've put our trust into them, our confidence into them, and it's been nothing but letdown, exposure to corruptions, scandals, and cover-ups. I personally wish that Suffolk County will take responsibility for their errors and hand this over to competent investigators that will get this job done because these girls deserve justice and the families deserve closure. And that's really all I have to say. God bless you all, and be safe. Much love. As for Shannon Gilbert's murder or accidental death, I don't believe there's enough to know to the public to say for sure. I do have my personal opinions, and I put in for a freedom of information request for Shannon Gilbert's case file, but not surprisingly, it was denied. I do think Cherie Gilbert should continue her fight, as it's been wildly successful for her family. And it's great to see that she's taken up the mantle that her mother previously held. What do we know about Lisk? Well, for starters, and this was hinted earlier in this video, that the killer had a type. Young, in their 20s, petite. The bodies were found in burlap. This could actually be a vital clue. Maybe he's a clamor, a gardener, but he's definitely someone that would be comfortable walking around with burlap, not something you often see in regular day life. Clamming is also not uncommon at all in Long Island. We also know he's a sadist, and the calls where he taunted the 16-year-old sister of Melissa Bartholomew illustrates his cruelness, as well his ability to dump a toddler on the side of the road. What he shows on the outside is charisma. He must be well put together, enough to convince these girls to let their guards down. Each of them had some sort of self-defense mechanism in place that was ultimately ditched in his instance. The FBI believes this person has some kind of intimate or personal reason to choose Ocean Parkway as it's a small and out-of-the-way place. Another big clue, which we hinted at earlier, is the summertime occurrence. Outside of the case of Fire Island Doe and Asian Doe, every other person went missing in the summer months. The seasonal component could mean a few things. 
Maybe he lives there only in the summertime. Maybe his family leaves him alone during that period, which allows him to hunt. Or maybe he has a seasonal component to his job, like he's a teacher. Whatever it is, the seasonal aspect is important to his ritual. He is what the FBI Behavioral Science Unit would call an organized serial murderer. He has a car and carefully plans every detail, meticulously. Socially competent. There's a sense of complete control from the type of victim to the crime scene. These are not spontaneous. However, there is evidence that he depersonalizes the victim, and this would mean he may have other elements of disorganized killers as well. Posing a dead body is also a characteristic of a disorganized killer, and this may come up later when we discuss subjects, so keep it in mind. This hybrid of the organized-disorganized is something the director of the FBI has taken the time to write up about in length. I will leave a PDF version of his report in the description. It's an interesting read if you find the psychology components of these stories worthwhile. We also know that none of the victims had plans to be driven back after their meeting with the killer, which tells us they felt confident this person would bring them back. There have been a ton of suspects floated, but I will do my best to boil this down to the most commonly touted people. We will start with the least likely and move on from there. I will note there's hardly a man in this story that's a good guy. If we expanded this section to include men who abused women, it would be a mile long. Between the pimps, the boyfriends who break their girlfriend's jaws, and the driver who has been arrested by the feds for bringing people into the country illegally twice, there just isn't a man I would want to know among any of them. First, and we made a video devoted just to him, Police Chief Burke. Burke is an interesting one, as he's corrupt and spent several years in federal jail after beating a suspect who broke into his car and stole a sex toy stuffed duffel bag. The attorney for Shannon Gilbert has even indicated that Burke may be more involved than previously thought when he found a sex worker who testified that Burke was at a sex party at Oak Beach, the same place Miss Gilbert went missing. There are many who believe that Burke and an evil cabal of other prominent men from Suffolk County were creating snuff films with these sex workers. While Burke is a morally bankrupt man who did some horrible things, the facts do not line up with the conspiracy that has been cooked up on the internet. However, Jimmy Burke definitely holds some blame for his attempts at subverting the investigation. Jimmy Burke took over the case shortly after the initial discoveries. He took over in 2012. And one of his first orders of business was to kick the FBI off the case. Can't have another agency sniffing around. They may see Jimmy for what he truly was. A gangster with a badge. If you'd like a little more background on Jimmy Burke and who he is and what he's done, I did make a video. I'll put the link above. There's also a good book that was just put out. It's written in a Martin Scorsese mob type way, appropriately. And it's called King Jimmy. If you like reading or audiobooks, definitely take, take a look. The Good Doctor Who Ran the Home for Wayward Girls Next is Peter Hackett. This is a man that needs no introduction if you follow this case. Peter Hackett most notably faked a heart attack when confronted by a news crew. It's an oldie, but let's run that clip here on the off chance you haven't seen it. So you never ran a home for wayward girls, nope. and you had nothing to do with Shannon Gilbert's death? That's correct. What about all the other girls? Fair! Jesus! What was that? My defibrillator. You son of a 
911. No, call don't. Now. Go. It's all right. No. I'm a doctor. I'm calling 911. You call 911. All these cues. Ah. 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 I'm gonna call 911. Oh, please start. don't. Please, doctor. Let me call 911. Okay. Would you find out? These guys caused me to have a defibrillation. Just take pictures of these clowns, would you? Dr. Hackett called Shannon Gilbert's mother the day after she went missing, and he denied it until he was presented with call records proving he was a liar. This is an odd coincidence, as we know lists like to call his victims, or like to call them and toy with them. However, in this case, Dr. Hackett used his real name, so it's probably a weird coincidence. Dr. Hackett, for his part, denied ever making the calls until he was confronted with proof. It is now believed he got the number from Alex Diaz, Shannon's boyfriend, when he came back to the neighborhood to pen missing posters up. This would line up with the timeline. Now, the doctor is described as a loudmouth. Even when certain authors are being charitable when writing about him, they can't help but ponder how far his deceptions really go. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if we found out one day he did have something to do with Shannon Gilbert's death. John Ray, the Gilbert's family lawyer, has done a great job of keeping the fire to the doctor's feet. He brought a civil suit against him. Now, the depositions have been invaluable in helping create a timeline. We see many of the key players discuss the case under oath. I'll include a link in the description to anyone that's interested in further reading. John the John. Finally, we have John Bitroff. On July 5th, 2017, Bitroff was found guilty of murdering two sex workers in the early 90s. Bitroff, for his part, was able to remain free and under no suspicion until a DNA hit on an unrelated case. His brother had given DNA due to a domestic incident, and this started the gears of justice to land on John Bitroff. Both the sex workers were posed naked in degrading ways in the woods by Manorville, the same town that Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor would be left. Bitroff lived around three miles from where Miss Mack and Miss Taylor would be dumped. Now, there's some other weird connections, too. These may or may not mean anything, so keep that in mind. One of the original victims, Rita, her adult daughter, was good friends with Melissa Bartholomew. Melissa's mother would also tell news reporters that her daughter had a lot of calls from Manorville at the time of her disappearance. While this is a jaw-dropper, we must remind you that circumstantial evidence could be little more than a coincidence. Any good police force will tell you sometimes weird connections exist, and they don't always mean what we wish them to mean. However, Suffolk County District Attorney's Office did release a statement saying that Bitroff was likely responsible for other deaths, even bluntly adding that this could include the Gilgo Beach bodies. If it's not Beltroff, I would think it's likely someone like him. And nobody. Someone flying under the radar. Someone you wouldn't suspect. However you do suspect, please call in. There is a $50,000 reward. And forget the money. Forget the money. You'd be the one that helped crack this case and helped the families get the justice they deserved number on the screen. I have also put in for a freedom information request for the Beltroff case, and it was also denied. The excuse in this case is that he is on appeals, which he'll be on for decades or more easily. All right, I've had other cases in other states where they're on appeals or they're going to court, and we've still been able to get, even if it's a heavily redacted, but we do get a case file. We weren't able to get anything. To me, it's BS. 
Anyhow, we're going to continue to fight for that case file on this one as we would like to know more regarding John. There are other suspects like James Bissett. He's a super wealthy business owner who killed himself the day after the discovery of the bodies. What's interesting is Bissett also had a gardener nursery business, which was a major supplier for burlap on Long Island. And we know the Gilgo 4 reportedly found in burlap. And that's part of that FBI profile. They said someone that would be involved with burlap. Um, this also goes back to the people that believe that the uh, police chief, Jimmy Burke, is involved with a cabal. They think that uh, he's the head. You know, to me, it's ripped right out of the uh, Dexter uh, season where there's that uh, group of friends. I think it's not very likely. Is it possible? Sure, anything's possible. But it just seems like it's kind of out there and it breaks the mold of what we know of serial killers. It's usually one person working alone, maybe two, but not a group. It's very hard to keep a group of people silent. Final thoughts. So when I started this video, I had some very ambitious plans. However, recording part two, I've caught COVID. And in fact, I'm still fighting it off. So as such, I'm going to end the video here. But I would like to make one more part to explore some of the more out-of-the-way theories and some other possible victims, like uh, Andre Sugar Bear Isaac, the drag queen from East New York that was dismembered and found partially on a Queens County beach and a pond on eastern Long Island, not far from Manorville. Even Suffolk County at one point included him on their official website. If you'd like to see the final video tying all of this together, please leave a comment below, which reminds me, I always hate to ask, but if you think this video was good and should be seen by others, please give a like and a comment as this is how YouTube knows to suggest this to other people. I'll be putting out videos every other Sunday, so check back if you're interested in other cases as well. Thank you so much. This is Zach Winters. Bye-bye.